uh, some things regarding our staff. So last week we brought uh, Rolly up here uh, and honored and thanked him for the work that he has done uh, in leading and really stabilizing discovery for uh, a while now, a couple of years during a, a time of transition. And so just want to remind you that uh, they are on vacation for the next six weeks. We are grateful to have Mark here uh, and leading uh, in his place during this time. Keep them in mind this week. This is kind of the, the first real week of, of getting into vacation, this time for them to rest and recharge as a family. Sometimes the beginning of that is actually the hardest part. You're kind of like uh, almost going through a detox uh, as you disengage from, uh, from the life of ministry. So keep them in mind, be praying for them. And then I also wanted to invite Stacy Judkins to come up and join me on stage. Stacy's been uh, serving here at Discovery for the last couple of years in children's ministry, and today is her last Sunday in the classroom, and then I believe next Sunday is her last actual Sunday on staff with us. Stacy has done uh, just an amazing job of being a very faithful, consistent presence in our children's ministry. Again, during a season of uh, the life of this church where there, it, where there was a lot of chaos, there was a lot of transition. I'm sure there were Sundays you were like, I don't even know who's going to be here on this particular Sunday. But she was here week in and week out serving and sacrificing to invest in the lives of our kids while also at the same time working a full-time job. So we are really grateful for the two years, two plus years of service that you've given to Discovery. Thanks for loving the kids here and helping them just have a really great experience um, at church, helping them discover the good news of Jesus in so many ways. So we're really glad uh, that you were able to do that. We wanted to say thank you to her today. Um, so here's a note from a variety of people here at Discovery and a gift for you. Um, and then I just wanted to pause for a moment and, and pray for Stacy. Um, and then uh, just encourage and challenge all of you uh, here this morning. At some point today, give her a high five or a hug. Say thank you again for her faithful presence uh, with our children over the last couple of years. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are really grateful for, uh, for Stacy and her willingness to jump in uh, during a time when there were, uh, there were a lot of holes and there was some significant need uh, for stability and leadership in our children's ministry. Thank you for her example for the rest of us of what it looks like to be a faithful presence, a faithful servant, to serve sacrificially, to give up her extra time and a variety of resources in order to make sure that the kids here at Discovery week in and week out had an opportunity to hear about Jesus and build relationships with each other, be loved by adults and by volunteers who are willing to give up their Sunday morning to spend that time with them. We pray now for her as she transitions out of staff that this would be a, a season for her to, uh, to rest a little bit and to have a little bit more space and margin in her life to be with you and to hear from you and to hear your, uh, your still small voice and your leadership. Uh, she thinks about what um, the next area or, or phase of serving for her at Discovery looks like. God, we are grateful for, uh, for her, for all of the folks that serve and make our children's ministry possible. Um, we just want to honor uh, Stacy this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's thank her one more time. Thank you. If you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 19, or chapter 20, I'm sorry. 
Matthew chapter 20 is where we are today. If you need a Bible, if you'd like a physical copy of the Bible, we love being able to, uh, to give those out and to share those with you. So uh, raise your hand and someone on our team uh, will come around and make sure that you actually have a physical copy of the Bible. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screen as we make our way through this. want to um, piggyback off the announcements here, though, for just a moment. Uh, say a little bit more about these prayer gatherings that we are going to be doing uh, this summer. So I have a, a very strong uh, sense, of a, a strong conviction that this fall is just going to be a really important moment in the life of our church. I think this last year, there's been a lot of momentum that's been building. We've kind of been clarifying some things, naming some things about who we are as a church and where we want to go. And we're just going to get real clear and explicit about what all of that is when we get to the fall. And as we start to name who we are and what we want to be as a church during that season, I think it's really important that we do that from a foundation of prayer. And so one of the ways that we want to do that is this summer spend a couple of different uh, moments praying very strategically for different parts of our community. And, and so we're going to do four of these gatherings this summer. The first one, again, coming up on Wednesday. We're going to be praying specifically for the city of Davis. And we thought, man, what a better place to do that than at the farmer's market where our city gathers uh, almost every single week throughout the year. And so we're going to meet there at 6. We're going to meet by the, uh, the red tractor uh, play structure. You guys know where that is? And I'll, I'll be leading this one. I'll have a couple of prompts for you. We'll do some walks around the park, pray over a couple of specific things. And then you can, uh, you know, go get some food or, or hang out uh, at, the, uh, at the park for as long as you want. But that'll be the first one. In July, we'll be here at the theater, not inside the theater, but kind of around this area. We'll be praying for our church. We'll be praying for other churches in Davis uh, and kind of using this uh, space as a way to sort of visualize the church in Davis and, and how we can be praying for that. In August, we'll be in South Davis and we'll be praying for schools as the uh, public school system gets back into the swing of things at the end of August. We'll be praying for teachers and students and our, our public schools here. And then in September, we'll be on campus and we'll be praying for students as they come back for the fall quarter. So that's a little preview of where things are going. If you have any questions about the prayer gatherings or our prayer ministry here, you can always ask me about them. And then Michaela, if you don't mind raising your hand, Michaela is one of our interns and she's also part of the, the prayer team that's forming uh, for the upcoming year. And she'd love to tell you more about what we're doing and what that looks like. All right. Speaking of prayer, let's pause for a moment, pray one more time, and then we'll jump into our conversation in Matthew. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this time. We are thankful for the gift of another day, a beautiful day here, as we begin the summer season together. Would you use this time to prepare us for the fall, to build new relationships, form deeper bonds uh, as we get to spend a little bit more intimate time together? Uh, we pray for the people in our community who are traveling, who are out of town, who are uh, home for the summer, whatever that might look like, depending on their stage of life. God, would you continue to move in them and speak to them? Form us in the ways of Jesus. Now, God, as we turn our attention to this, this text, this is both challenging and inspiring at the same time, the words of Jesus today to his disciples. Would we be a church that becomes great through serving and through sacrificing and through compassion? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, let's begin with a story. When my daughter Marina was born, this was 2012, we were living in Boston at this time. And when you, uh, I didn't give birth, but when you give birth, you, you go into this room, right, for labor and delivery. And then after that happens, they check, it, they check you out, make sure you're okay. And they put you into this recovery room for a day or two just to make sure that mom and baby are doing okay. So there's this moment where we are now in this recovery room and uh, you kind of take a deep breath. It's been like this crazy, chaotic experience, very intense experience. And now you're able to get settled and the baby's hopefully asleep for a little bit. And so we kind of have this like, oh, we're here and we're exhausted. And so we just turn on the TV for a moment just to see what's been going on in the world while we've been in the midst of this experience. And the lead news item in the Boston News on that particular day was that Dustin Pedroia, who is the second baseman for the Boston Red Sox, also from Woodland, fun fact. Okay, so this kind of makes this story even cooler now. Dustin Pedroia had left the Red Sox game in the middle of an inning, middle of the seventh inning, runs off the field because his wife had gone into labor. And so we're watching this, this news story, and again, we've just been through this very intense thing. Our first child is born. We're kind of like tearing up and getting emotional. I'm like, oh, we have this bond with the Pedroyas, and we had kids at the same time. And it's like, you know, you have, just have no control over what happens, you know, physically. So you're just like, oh, my gosh, this is so amazing. And so kind of right at that moment, I, I jump out of the room to, I don't know, get some water or a bucket of ice or something, and I make my way down the hallway, and I run into Dustin Pedroia in the hallway. Now, I'm not the kind of person that gets like really excited about like, oh, I ran into a celebrity and all this sort of stuff, but I do love sports, and I really love baseball. And at that time, if there were like two or three people on the Red Sox that I would have loved to have spent some time with. Dustin Pedroia would have been absolutely at the top of the list. He's this iconic figure in Boston sports. He won the American League Rookie of the Year, uh, American League MVP, several All-Star games, was a part of World Championship teams, and he's short. And so Bostonians love him because he's like this scrappy player who's really good, like way better than he probably should be. And so here I am in the hallway with Dustin Pedroia. And again, normally I'm like, oh, whatever, it's celebrity, not a big deal. But in this, in this case, normal Steve would have been like, Dustin Pedroia, oh my gosh, you're, you're here and I'm here and we both had babies at the same time and isn't this amazing and you're the second baseman for the Red Sox and I love you and let's get a selfie, I'm from California too. Like, you know, just kind of lose my mind in that moment, right? But I had just gone through a major life transformation. I'm now a dad. I'm now mature. And so I, you know, we're standing there in the hallway getting a bucket of ice or whatever it is that we're doing, and I'm, you know, I just kind of look over at him. And I'm, you know, this guy also has just been through a very traumatic experience. He doesn't want some guy getting up in his face about whatever, asking for a picture. So I'm just looking at him, and I kind of do the, like, sup? <laughs> right? Just very cool. Very cool knowing dad nod to Dustin Pedroia. Calmly walk back into the room, gently close the door. Amy, you won't believe what just happened. I said, Dustin Pedroia's in the hallway. They're in the hospital at the same time as I said. And so probably woke Marina up and completely disturbed whatever kind of peace we had in that moment. Now, I begin with this story for a couple of reasons. The main one is this. America's pastime is not actually baseball. All right? It's not even football or sports. I would argue that America's favorite pastime is Celebrity gossip. 
right? We have this weird fascination with celebrities. We follow them on social media and we read these articles about them and we want to know like what were they wearing on the red carpet and we also love it when we bump into them. We love to be close to celebrities and when we do we post about it on Facebook, right? This was, uh, this was that actual moment when this happened. My mom liked it so that's great. This is what we do, right? We love it when we run into celebrities and we tell everyone about it and it can be this very important moment for us. Now, this love of celebrity culture, uh, uh, sort of following celebrities, wanting to be close to them, it's actually forming and shaping our values. And there are a number of studies out there that show that for the emerging generations, the majority of them would put fame as a life goal ahead of things like having a steady job, or owning a home. All right, think about that for a moment. Fame is a more important life goal than having a steady job or owning a home. Now, this desire for notoriety, this desire to be close to celebrities, this sort of fascination with celebrity culture should cause tension for us who want to be followers of Jesus, who are trying to follow in the ways of Jesus. And our text this morning in Matthew chapter 20 brings this tension right to the surface. So I want you to read along with me. We're going to be looking at the second half of Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 17, making our way through the end. Again, you can follow along on the screen or read along in your Bible with me. Verse 17, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and on the way he took the twelve aside and said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it that you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. This is the mom of James and John asking this question. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And so Jesus calls them all together and says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called to them, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, they answered, we want our sight. And so Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. Now we're in the second to last movement in the book of Matthew. We're about three quarters of the way through the book. 
And we've split this uh, long journey up into seven parts, right? Seven mini-series. This is the sixth of the seventh. We're calling this section Anticipation. Because all of the action now is beginning to lead us towards the dramatic end of the story. And even the beginning of our text today, Matthew reminds us of where this is all headed, right? Jesus going up to Jerusalem. And this was literally a journey up the mountain from Jericho, through Jericho, up the mountain to get into the city. And Jesus has talked about this before. This is now the third time that he's given them some insight into where this whole thing is headed. We're going to Jerusalem. And when we get there, there's going to be this conflict with the religious authorities. And that conflict is going to lead to my death. But after three days, I will be raised back to life. Third time now, Jesus has given them this information. There are a couple of new things, though, new twists that show up here. In our NIV Bibles, verse 18 says that the Son of Man will be delivered. And verse 19 says that the Son of Man will be handed over. Now in the Greek, the same word is used here. It's just translated in two different ways. Paradidomi means to betray. And we get a little bit of foreshadowing here. In Matthew, more than any other gospel, there's a focus on the betrayal aspect of Jesus' trial and death. So keep this in mind. This this is going to be something we see come up a few more times as we move forward. Now the other new information that we are given here is that Jesus is going to be handed over to the Gentiles. We know there's going to be this conflict between Jesus and the religious leadership of Israel. But here for the first time, Jesus says the Gentiles are going to be a part of this. This is code word for Rome. Most of Jesus' life and ministry has taken place in the shadows of the Roman Empire. He doesn't have very much contact with it, but it's sort of always there in the background This occupation of the Roman Empire of Israel. But here's the thing. When you lead a revolution, when you talk about a kingdom, and when you claim to be a king of a different kind of kingdom, you will run into the power structures of your day. And again, here we have some foreshadowing. This is going to be a significant part of the next several scenes leading to Jesus' death. So we're going to talk more about this when we get to some of those moments. I just want to say a a quick word about it now because I think this is important for us to hear. It also sets up what Jesus says next. The kingdom of heaven, this reality that Jesus has been teaching about and inviting people to live in, is not about, we've seen this so many times, right? It's not about a better Israel or a better Rome. And so in that sense... In that sense, the kingdom of heaven always stands outside of the power structures of its day and of our day. It's outside of it. It's different from it. It's distinct from it. That does not mean, however, that does not mean, however, that it has nothing to say or no interaction with those powers and structures. And sometimes you'll hear, uh, you know, Christians say things like, I don't really like to get involved in politics or that's, you know, that's, they don't kind of mix. Or there's no overlap between my faith and politics. It's two different things, right? Now, there's a healthy impulse there. I think, again, there's this recognition the kingdom of heaven is outside of that. It's not Rome. It's not Israel. It's not Republican. It's not Democrat. But that difference is itself a political statement. When you show up, again, when you show up somewhere 
claiming a throne, proclaiming a different kingdom, a kingdom that does not align with the political powers of your day. That is a political statement and it will ruffle some feathers. And that's putting it mildly, especially in the case of Jesus, right? This is exactly what Jesus is doing. He knows that this is going to cost him, this preaching of a different kingdom is in itself a critique of the kingdoms of his day. First though, Jesus has to deal with this internal conflict. First two times that he talks about his mission, where this thing is headed, Jerusalem, the cross, my death, his disciples, they, they, they get upset or, or they grieve or there's some combination of both. Here though, we see this very different response. The mom of James and John shows up and, and asks a very awkward question, right? <clears throat> Grant that one of these two sons of mine sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now, what is going on here? Why, why does the mom show up? Why, do they, why does she make this request? What, what is James and John, how are they involved in this scene? This is just a very strange thing that's taking place, right? What is she doing here? Is this a total like misread of the room, Jesus just talking about his death and his resurrection and now she wants to know if, if her sons can sit on the best thrones in the kingdom? Like, what's up with that? Or is it that she understands something that the rest of the disciples don't get? Jesus in the last chapter just talked about uh, in the future there's going to be thrones and these guys are going to be sitting on these thrones. And she's sort of capitalizing on that moment. I want to make sure my boys have the best seat there. Or is it that James and John set her up? Like, is this kind of like, hey, mom, can you, do you mind like going and doing this thing for us? Or is this the first century version of snowplow parenting? You guys know what snowplow parenting is? This is where parents sort of pave the way, right? Knock all the obstacles out of the way of their kids. I think we forget sometimes the disciples were, were most of them were pretty young, probably teenagers. And that obviously means a very different thing in that context than it does in ours. But these were young men. And so is this a mom standing up for her boys? Or is this just one of those like embarrassing parent moments where James and John are like, oh my gosh, mom, not like not now. Not in front of my friends. My daughter just finished kindergarten and um, the last couple of months when the weather's been better, we've been riding our bikes to school. And so when I drop her off, she, she's now developed two requests for me. The first is that when we get there, I take my helmet off. Dad, I don't want people seeing you walk around with your helmet on. <laughs> okay, that's an easy one, no problem. I can take my helmet off. But the other one really was like hard for me, okay? Because she's, when we get to the actual goodbye moment, she's like, Dad, you can hug me, but no smooches. I'm like, oh, what do you mean no smooches? Like, I'm gonna, so of course I still give her a kiss. She's like, oh, Dad, why are you doing that? Already in kindergarten, ugh. But is this that kind of moment for James and John? Mom, what are you doing? Don't do this in front of our friends. Now what happens next, I think, clarifies this for us. I think James and John very much know what they're getting themselves into here. Jesus says to them, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And this, this word cup here is a metaphor for Jesus' suffering and death. This is a really big question that Jesus is asking them. Can you share in my suffering and my death? And their immediate confident answer is, yeah, we can. We can do that. Which to me, again, communicates that at some level they understand we, like, we're going for it right now. We're going to go for the best seats in the house right here and right now. 
But I think it also communicates what Jesus says right before all of this. You do not know what you're asking. <clears throat> or maybe another way of saying it is, do you understand what you're asking? <laughs> do you realize what you're saying here? The disciples weren't formed in our celebrity-worshipping culture, but as we've seen, theirs was this honor-shame culture. And at the risk of being overly simplistic, honor was good and shame was bad. And so wanting to sit at the most prestigious seats at Jesus' left and right hand, of course you would want to sit there. And of course you would ask about it. Of course you would angle for that, for the best seats in the house. Once again... Once again, we see that these guys are operating out of the old paradigm where kingdoms are about power and about influence, about honor, about money, about prestige. James and John want in and they want the best seats. Jesus says you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. You will drink from my cup which if, the, if they're paying attention is a fairly ominous promise, right? Ooh, <laughs> we will drink from that cup. Jesus has made it clear before, to be a disciple of his is to suffer. It's to pick up a cross and, and follow in his ways. Honor through death and sacrifice. Jesus then says it's not even up to him to decide. It's up to the Father to decide. And then to top this whole thing off, this conversation really offends the rest of the disciples. The other ten, the text says, are indignant. And maybe a better translation there is disgusted. Now, we might feel a little bit of sympathy for the other disciples here, right? No one likes to see these kinds of power grabs. But this is not righteous indignation. This is how dare you. I want that seat. <laughs> what are you doing? And so here we see a rift in, in their community. Again, three-quarters of the way through Matthew, you see some of the seams are being pulled apart in this little community of disciples. This happens all the time in human communities. Another kid's story. My kids are always arguing right now about, you know, these, these uh, issues of fairness and justice, right? That piece was bigger than mine. I, why did I get the same size? Or, or why does she always get to go first? This, this selfish human desire to get the credit, to want the position of honor, to have the best thing, to get what we think we deserve. It's present in every human community and it will destroy every human community at some point if left unchecked. So Jesus calls them all together and says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. What Jesus does here is so brilliant. This is such great leadership. He, he gathers them all together, all 12 of them, and he begins to reorient them. This is good teaching, good vision casting. It begins with what is. You know how it works in the Roman Empire. Authority lorded over people, and then he begins to paint a picture of what could be. Good leadership takes you from here to there, from the old paradigm into the new paradigm. Jesus says this request that you have made, this reveals that your thinking is again stuck in this old paradigm. And, and so here Jesus says what I think is one of the most important things he says in the entire book of Matthew. He says, not so with you. Not so with you. 
Jesus, who teaches in parables, who pushes us towards discernment more than answers, who, who pushes us towards questions more than certainty, here in this moment makes this point very, very clear. Not so with you. Authority in the kingdom of heaven is radically different than in the kingdoms of the world. The last shall be first. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus reorders power and authority here in two really important ways. First, primarily through his example. Giving himself up as a ransom. Coming not to be served, but to serve. Choosing this downward path. And Jesus uses two very charged words here, right? Servant and slave. This might make us uncomfortable at some level, but this is the Son of God using these words to describe himself and his mission. The world is put back together. Right relationship is possible because Jesus gave up his power and his authority for our sake. Second, he reorders power through community. He tells his disciples, this is what it's going to look like for you, not so with you. The expression of the kingdom of heaven on earth is the church. And the church is always at its best when it gives itself away. When it models this downward trajectory that Jesus, uh, the example of Jesus that he gave for us. I think this raises some, some serious and significant questions for us. What if we repented of our desire to be in power? Our need to be right. Our, our need to have our guy win a particular election. Our need to be victorious in the culture war. To have a, a seat at a table of power. To have our movies played in Hollywood, What if we repented of that and instead focused on giving ourselves away individually and as a community? What would that look like? Well, Matthew gives us a, a picture of that right away. The very next scene, Jesus and his disciples leave Jericho, continuing up, up the hill towards Jerusalem. And this large crowd begins to follow them. Again, this idea of anticipation. These people are like, ooh, it's going down. We're going to Jerusalem, to, uh, to the capital, to the temple. Something significant is about to happen. And as they make their way there, two blind guys begin to shout at Jesus to have mercy on them. Now, there's a bunch of interesting parallels between this scene and the one that comes right before it. In both scenes, Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem, right? Towards his destiny, on mission, towards the cross. In both scenes, he allows his mission to be interrupted by a request. And in both scenes, Jesus asks this immensely clarifying question, what do you want? What do you really want here? Both scenes involve two men, and both scenes involve bold asks despite the indignation or the rebuke of the others in the audience. But how different are the requests? How different are the questions that are asked here? Let us sit in a position of power versus help me see. 
What if James and John, what what might Jesus' response to James and John have been if that was their question? Jesus, we just want to see. We, we see at the very end here, Jesus has compassion on them. He touches them, does a miracle, restores their sight, and he gains two new followers. What happens right after Jesus tells his disciples, not so with you? He lives it. He gives them a, an example. This is a living parable of what he has just taught them. Jesus allows his earth-saving mission to be interrupted by two blind beggars on the side of the road. They're desperate. They go to the right place looking for help. And this is who Jesus came for. We've seen this so many times in our journey through Matthew, right? Came for the blind, both literally and spiritually. For us, we're, we're so often blinded by the pursuit of greatness, by celebrity, by fame, by notoriety, this desire to live our best life now that we miss what Jesus is doing right in front of us. And we often miss the people that he is most drawn to, the people that he has compassion for over and over again. Now, a couple thoughts for us as we come in for a close here. Two times today, Jesus asked this question, what do you want? What do you want? In my experience, many Christians are are conditioned to downplay this question. We think that to be a servant or a slave is to deny our wants, to downplay our desires. But Jesus has no interest in getting rid of desire. Buddhism is, is the system that says desire is evil. Jesus embraces desire. What do you really want? Now the goal of asking this question is, is not to grant wishes or, or, or to simply affirm whatever the request is. The purpose is to unearth the desire. It is to get to the truth. What's really going on here? What's the desire underneath the desire, the thing behind the thing? Our attraction to celebrity comes from this desire to feel significant, to lead a meaningful life. But it is a misdirected desire. It is twisted by our sin. The disciples are called to deny themselves, to pick up a cross, to sell everything, to become slaves. And in doing so, they become great. Their lives matter. We are here this morning because of the sacrifices that they made. That's some serious significance even 2,000 years later. But again, the invitation of Jesus is not to deny our desires, but to have our desires reordered or transformed. This is the continual paradigm shift from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of heaven. From our cultural values to the values of Jesus' kingdom. And I want to highlight three important aspects of that shift that I think show up in the story today. So first, we see a shift from authority to service. All right, a shift from authority to service. Greatness, Jesus says, comes not through positional authority, not through a throne on my right or my left. It comes through serving. There's this fascinating thing in human beings, right? We have this desire for a leader, for a king who will solve all of our problems for us. The power of the kingdom of 
heaven, though, is that it is always giving its power away. Our king does not come in domination but in compassion. Stooping down to wash our feet and heal our blindness, to ransom us from our sin and death. When Jesus says, not so with you, he's redefining greatness, but he's also empowering his team. Empowering them to go and to do things. Too often we look to a leader to solve our problems when in fact we've been given tremendous authority to serve and to meet needs. This is why we say things here at Discovery like better together. All right, that's one of our core values. And that's not just a, a, a nice hashtag that we can use on social media. That's a deeply held conviction that comes straight from, from Jesus. This is not going to be a, a culture of, well, the pastor said this, and so therefore that's what we're going to do. This is a better together, we are in this together kind of culture. This leads to the second shift from saving to sacrificing. From saving to sacrificing, Jesus is the ransom. Jesus is the Savior, and, and we of course, are called to share that good news with the world, but we are not the Savior. We take up a posture of a servant. We make sacrifices. We are broken and poured out for the good of our community so that people can discover and know the good news of Jesus. Our team just got back from uh, uh, San Diego, the, the uh, Kaleo team that we sent out this last week, I, I look forward to them being able to share more about that with you guys in the coming weeks. But when we go on a trip like that, when we go somewhere else in the world, when we run the, the family field day on the 4th of July or we do the school supply drive that we do before uh, school gets started in August, when we go and we pray for our community, we go not as saviors, we go as servants giving ourselves away for the good of the other. This leads to the final shift from celebrity to compassion. From celebrity to compassion. I've been, uh, I have not been shy about saying that my dream, one of my hopes for discovery is that we have a significant impact on the landscape of the future of the church. Not just here in Davis, but even around the world. And what I want you to hear right now is that that does not come from a desire for our church to be famous. It's because our world is desperate for churches that reject celebrity and embrace compassion. We do not need another famous preacher or another famous church. We need more compassionate communities of Jesus followers. Are you with me? This is the path that Jesus calls us to to serve and to sacrifice and to show compassion. Following Jesus leads down before it leads up, down from heaven into the world's suffering and pain, down into the haunts of lepers and demoniacs, down into sharing meals with ordinary sinners, down into life in a painfully flawed community, down into spiritual poverty and persecution, down into unspectacular displays of mercy and forgiveness. The church is always at its best when it's serving, when it's sacrificing, and when it is compassionate. Let's pray.
Father, we are so grateful that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Every other king at some level comes to be served. But Jesus came to serve, to give his life as a ransom. Not considering equality with God something to be grasped, he emptied himself, taking on the role of a servant. And dying in our place that we might have life, that we might have right relationship with you and with each other, that we might be able to serve in a kingdom that will last. That, that will last all the way through eternity. And so we are so grateful this morning for Jesus' death, for his sacrifice, for what that means for us. That, that we can enjoy eternal life, right relationship with you and with each other. God, we pray now for uh, those of us in this room as we continue to process this, there might be a shift that we need to make this morning towards serving, towards sacrificing, towards compassion. God, too often we get caught up in our, in our own thing, in our own, own stuff, uh, our own uh, want to be at the center of the action. But you are at the center of the action and you invite us to be a part of that. So God, continue to reorder our desires, reorder uh, our hopes and our dreams and our wants around the things that you care about most. We pray all of this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.